In today's world, the intersection of sports and music plays a integral role in our line of thinking and how we approach society at large. It informs our decision-making and helps us to form a philosophy which helps us to win at all aspects of our life. No matter your socioeconomic background, sports and music has a unique way of bonding all of us closer together. No one knows that better than Andy Fry. He's a sports writer whose articles have been published in the likes of Forbes, The Rolling Stone, and ESPN. He's interviewed scores of athletes from Shaquille O'Neal, Venus Williams, and Tony Hawk, just to name a few. He's also had the great fortune of interviewing some of the biggest names in music, including the Smashing Pumpkins. He's also written a book entitled 90 Days in the 90s. It's a plot-driven fiction title, travel story, which encompasses music, pop culture, and contemporary history. Fry, join me this week to have a conversation about the intersection of sports, music, and the 90s, and how it's influenced his life. So without further delay, I'm Kevin McShann. Let's have this conversation. Welcome you to the program, and I'm super excited to learn about uh, your work in both the intersection of sports and music. Great to see you uh, this afternoon, and thank you so very much for being here. All right, go ahead. Great, thank you. Yeah, so Andy, I know that uh, you spent most of your career writing in sports, and you you also have had uh, quite the extensive background in music, so I'm wondering if we can start our conversation, but uh, you you simply giving me a 360-degree view of your life, and what, what makes you so fabulous, my friend? Well, I don't know about fabulous, but um, I've, I've, I guess you could say I've, I've had, uh, for someone who has interest in, you know, cool things, I've had a, a nice ride. Yeah, I like anybody else, I spent some time, um, you know, working uh, the day job, and uh, it's probably about 15 years ago. I started uh, just you know writing. I, I, I've always been a writer, but I started blogging about sports and um, got to eventually take that to become you know like a, a job, which was kind of kind of strange because uh, I worked in business for a long time and 
started dabbling as a writer on a blog and would just write about sports primarily and give my opinion and ask, you know, ask friends what they thought about my, probably like beg my friends to read my, my, my posts. But eventually it became uh, a thing where I got to write a little bit for ESPN and then write more for ESPN. And uh, originally it was, you know, high school athletes and extreme sports athletes. And then the last couple of years, it's been the major athletes like Shaq and Tom Brady. And I just interviewed uh, Tony Hawk for the second time last week. Uh, legends like Billie Jean King and Venus Williams. And it's been kind of all over the place. But it's, it's been a good ride. And I just, you know, I'm just a sports fan who asks people questions about what motivates them and what else they're doing, you know, when they're not uh, swinging a racket or throwing a football. And from that, just, you know, have kept writing all the, you know, all along and come up with, with other projects since. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Andy, as an old sports reporter myself, I'm, I'm fascinated to ask you about how do you think the intersection of uh, sports and music really uh, collide together? Because there are similarities between the two. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on the intersection of, of sports and music and how you think they collide together. Well, I think for the people who love music and people who love sports, you know, I suppose there are a lot of segments of the population that just kind of know about sports. You know, they know that they know who Michael Jordan is and, and there's people who just listen to whatever's on the radio. But both attract people who are uh, who make them obsessions are pretty close to obsessions. We got, you know, it, it's it's everything. It's I've known baseball nuts who can tell me, you know, off the top of their head what uh I don't know, Babe Ruth's or uh, Babe Ruth's, you know, on-base percentage was as, as a hitter. Uh, I know people who know everything and every, I haven't really kept up with NFL football uh, as much as some of my friends. Like, you know, I remember when the 4-3 defense was the big thing in the, in the 80s. And I still grumble about, um, you know, the circumstances under which some people can score touchdowns because I think it was a lot harder in the 80s when I was growing up. But uh, my dog just walked in here. So he heard us talking, but uh, there's people who, you know, in every sport and every subgenre of music or every genre of music too. Uh, same with movies and TV. Like there's people who don't do it professionally but are experts because they love it. And I think the cool part about entertainment in America and in the Western world is that uh, we can really dial into something that just makes us happy and have in-depth conversations or just observe and you know, enjoy it, I guess, more passively. So I, I guess with music and sports, for me, they intersect. I live in Chicago. So, I mean, uh, Chicago always was this great music city. And now for several years, we've had Lollapalooza. We've had Riot Fest. We've always had great little clubs where I can see a band with 100 other people that, you know, may be big someday or maybe just is a band that I enjoy. And I think sports is the same way, too. I mean, obviously, you got to go to an arena to see Chicago Bulls. You go to Wrigley to see the Cubs, but there's all kinds of great stuff. Like I remember years ago going up to Northwestern to watch the collegiate fencing championships. So I took my kid who was three at the time. Now he's 16. And we we're just fascinated with like the, just the competition. And I guess um, the physical commitment that, you know, that someone who swings swords has, I think sports and music, uh, there's something for everyone. And and the great part is we can really get obsessed and, and really enjoy everything that's there if we want to. Yeah, absolutely. And Andy, I know that you're the author of 90 Days in the 90s, my friend. So 
Tell me about the book, why you wanted to write it, and the message behind it as well. Yeah, I think um, everybody, even people who aren't aren't writers necessarily, like we all have a, a good idea for a book that we thought of at one point or another, you know, or so we either it's a memoir about something happened in our life or like a funny skit or we think about like the work, the crazy stuff that happens in our office and our school or our home and who knows what. Um, so I, I think I when I was just starting to get uh, into sports writing, you know, I was just trying to do whatever I could to to get um, articles published and to get, you know, maybe get people to read my stuff and uh, just get onto the next interesting topic. And all along it, I, I thought about a number of different ideas for books, but I think this one, 90s and 90s, I just had a, a little over five years ago I had, but going on six years ago now, I just had an idea. I was walking around one day around Easter, just kind of taking a break from working on my computer, um, was listening to some music on, you know, through my headphones on Spotify on my phone, and I think I was listening to 90s music. I don't even remember what, what exactly I was listening to, but I remember just having a thought, like, wouldn't it be great if I could go back and see this band or if I could go back to the 90s and especially 90s Chicago because I, I, I you know, was a 20-something in Chicago when the whole grunge and indie scene was happening. I just thought, like, wouldn't it be great to go back in time? Or we think about time travel a lot in terms of, like, Back to the Future and all these movies where somebody's got to do some big thing. But if you and I could just time travel for a weekend, like we would probably go do something fun. We wouldn't go necessarily try to go kill Hitler or save JFK from getting assassinated or do something majorly uh, in terms of world events. Like we would probably just go back to like our high school or I don't know, maybe a, a sandwich shop or a taco place that we love that's closed now, or we'd go see a band. And that was really just the, the, the thought of behind it. Like, just like I'm a sports fan who writes about sports and gets to interview athletes, like I thought about going back in time, traveling to the 1990s in Chicago and kind of re-experiencing the music scene. And then once I thought that was a cool idea, I just took some time to invent characters and figure out like what would be a realistic situation for a real person who was in that scenario, who you know got to go back in time and got to do some things over, you know, like we all think about things that we like to do over. And that's really where the, the the idea, you know, grew. It just was kind of this organic thing. And when I was about halfway through the process, you know, about like two and a half years ago, I had created a story that I was still working on, but it was basically this, you know, I had characters that were hanging out in the 1990s, listening to cool music from the 90s. And that every day, every day that I would write, I was kind of like going back and I would basically like go hang out with my friends in the nineties. And that was me writing the story. So two hours would go by and I'd be either editing something or writing something new or coming up with an idea. I wanted to see if I could work into the story, but it was really like, I was just going back, going out and hanging out with my, my characters there and having fun for, you know, a couple hours a day. And it made it easier. I think you got to write what you like and what you like to write about. So that's sort of what I did. And I just made it more of an experiential thing and uh, with a little bit of work and elbow grease, it, it became a became a book when I finally finished it. Well, Andy, I always say when you find your passion in life, you don't work a day in your life, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you, I, whether your pa if your passion is knitting or fishing or I don't know, like I'll give you an example. Uh, the first writing conference I ever went to was the Northern Colorado Writing Conference. I think I went back in probably uh, about this time of the year in 2017. I just, I had a friend in Colorado to visit. The conference was only like 200 bucks. I just went for 
days. And also there were like literary agents and people, there's like stuff to do that was important as a, a new writer think about writing a book. But it was me, you know, from Chicago and people were asking me like, why are you here? Uh, and I was surrounded by a bunch of people writing dog memoirs or dog books. Uh, a lot of people writing, there's, there's like at least 10 or 12 people writing memoirs about caring for someone with Alzheimer's, which I didn't know that that, that subgenre of nonfiction was was that big. And then there's plenty, you know, it's Colorado, so there's plenty of outdoorsy types writing about, uh, you know, like zombie, zombie apocalypse in the woods while skiing or hiking or whatever. So, um, but just like the number of dog memoir people, like I have a dog now, I didn't have a dog then, but my dog is sitting here next to me as we speak. Uh, I kind of get now why if you like dogs or you love your dog, you might want to write either, I don't know, a kid's book about dogs or a nonfiction book about like, I don't know, you know, whatever. There's there's a million different ways you could take it. So the fact that you just love dogs or you love your dog, you know, that there's a whole bunch of opportunities if you want to write. And that's kind of how I look at it, that, you know, anything can be a passion or something that's fun. And, you know, writing a book is just sort of putting in the work to have a conversation with people out there who might be interested in what you're talking, interested in talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as a, a sports reporter, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on the process of actually writing a book and sort of uh, the perspectives from your life and professional experience that made writing the book a little bit easier as well. Yeah, well, so I've done, I, if you're, I guess, unless you're doing just play by play, um, I think if you, you it's, I've interviewed a lot of athletes. So I think interviewing, you're always looking to get quotes if you're talking about sports, because there's always somebody who helped win the game or the championship. And it's always great to get a quote. So when you interview people or you make conversation with people, um, that's a great skill to have is when you're trying to write a book. And I didn't know that. So um, to give you an example, like how that came about, about halfway through the process, I decided that my protagonist, Darby, the name was the same, but I, I changed Darby from like a white guy like me to a woman. Um, and there's a couple of reasons behind that. I think uh, in 2020, I thought, you know, I was having some success uh, getting agents interested, but I, I kept getting like pushback. And I, I had this realization that maybe in 2020, after, uh, after, you know, four and a half years of Donald Trump and me too and George Floyd that maybe the last thing that people want to read about the last thing publishers are interested in is a book about a white guy who wants to go back to the past so I had that realization I thought about some things I thought well, maybe this the character can be the same person but would be more interesting as a female and I thought about the fact that I've interviewed half of the athletes I've interviewed I, so I mentioned I've interviewed Tom Brady and Shaq and Tony Hawk but I've interviewed just as many women I've interviewed like Jenny Finch Billie Jean King uh about maybe a third of the U.S. women's national soccer team, Megan Rapinoe a couple times, uh, Venus Williams twice. Like, so it wasn't. I didn't. I wasn't going to say that as a writer writing a fiction book that I suddenly knew anything about everything about women. But as a narrator, because my book is in third person, I just kind of used that interviewing that I did with uh, female athletes and, and everybody that I've interviewed. Because a lot of times, in in we forget about the fact that like sports writing, a lot of it's like you're talking about somebody else's experience, their game, their season, and you're trying to relate it in 800 to 1,000 words. You're basically, you know, retelling someone's story, and that's what you do as an expository writer in sports journalism. So I had to kind of take that and scale it up a little bit, and that's, the, I guess, the muscle that I use to tell the story of this woman who is, you know, around about my age. She's a Gen Xer. She goes back to the 90s in her 20s, 
to experience some things over and you know she's just in the music as much in the music as i am um but not trying to be here just trying to retell her story so i think just the interviewing that i've done over the last you know like 10 plus years helped in being a third person narrator trying to write a book and take accounts and episodes from that that person's life and then putting it on a page and making it make sense so yeah that's um that's pretty much the main thing yeah absolutely and you know, and I know you've written for both Forbes, ESPN, and the Rolling Stone. The Rolling Stones have interviewed, as you said, Shaq, and uh, I know you've also interviewed the uh, Smashing Pumpkin as well. So I'm wondering your thoughts on your your defining moment as a journalist and your your favorite interview as well. I mean, there's probably twenty of those. Um... Yeah, I mean, like, so one thing that happened with COVID is Zoom is is normal now. So before COVID in the the year long lockdown, like most of the interviews I did were over the phone. Like literally, I would they, I would have a recorder or recording device next to my cell phone. It would be on a, a telephone. But uh, Zoom became normalized. So then the second time I got to interview Shaq, I'm doing like I'm doing a Zoom with Shaq, like I'm doing with you. That was kind of trippy because you know. First of all, like he's super down to earth and he's he's nice and he'll talk to anybody like a normal person, which I think is a great asset to him. Even though I, I rooted against Shaq when he was playing because I grew up a Sixers fan and I was a Bulls fan in Chicago. So I never rooted for Shaq as a player. But like getting to do a Zoom with that with that guy like I would do with my aunt or you or just you know, any normal person, that was pretty cool. And we talked a lot about... Yeah, you know, some the things that he was doing, but also like as an athlete who owns a bunch of businesses because I wanted to know like... How different are you in you know, in your pizza restaurant than you are on the bench or or on the court? And he actually told me a story about like one of my he said one of my pizza restaurants we had we had a flood so like I closed I closed the pizza I, he owns some Papa John so it's like a takeout pizza restaurant so he's like we closed like we weren't open but everybody got paid um, and you know, like we had to do things like call the plumber and drain the water out of the place and move some equipment around and figure some things out to really really get get it so he could open the next day. This is, I think, one of his uh, pizza stores in Atlanta. So uh, we don't tend to think of like multi-million dollar athletes doing nuts and bolts down to down to earth things like that. But the ones who are involved in business, who have their own brands or have their own, like they, they partner with people to do things that they're not experts on. They have to do, like they have to deal with real people, so to speak. So that was cool to hear from him um, that he's, you know, that he's, he's, he's inspired by some of the same business um like visionaries that we are and he reads and he he's always want always wants to learn more and you know i think a lot of us aspire to that so it's cool to see someone who's a mega sports celebrity who everybody in the world knows you know have a conversation about those normal things that we experience in the office or in our workplace yeah absolutely and you know and yeah i'm fascinated to ask you this uh because <clears throat> It's kind of a personal uh, question of interest. So, and I was born with what's called uh, spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy. It's the most uh, severe form of cerebral palsy that uh, you can be born with. And I, I'm always looking to help people diversify their way and in getting into journalism. So, I'm curious, how do you think we can, can uh, get more? diverse uh, voices in journalism itself and 
uh, particularly uh, folks with disabilities as well. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the, the cool part is, so, yeah, I, when I was growing up in the 80s, um, I would turn on TV and I would see Brent Musburger and I would see, like, I love Dick Schaap. And there usually would be, like, one woman, usually pretty blonde, one who also knew about sports on CBS Sports or ABC. This is before ESPN came, came about. And I think we're, we're in a much more diverse territory. Um, so I feel like there's, a, I, I mean, there's always criticism of sports journalism, but um it's more diverse so i'll give you so last summer totally random i don't know if, you, if you've ever seen the commercials for um the shriners and their spokesperson alec alec Cabacungan. i met him at oak park it was like oak park street fest or oak park uh may fest or something last summer and i was just like hey like how's it going you know i want to tell my friends i met you we, we bumped fists and stuff and then we connected on twitter we've had some conversations and i, I was delighted to find out that alec you know, like he still move, he still gets around in a wheelchair. He still has the same physical uh, difficulties that he that he's had his whole life. He's a journalism student at Northwestern, and I every once in a while I'll check in with him. I'm like, hey, how's, how's journalism? And he's like, it's kicking my ass. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm taking a ton of classes and I'm trying to keep up here. And I just say, yeah, that's just like you know, that's <laughs> I guess that's the way it is. And keep it up and you'll do fine. Like he is a sports mega fan more than I. Like he's probably met more than more. Um, professional athletes than I have. And he's always into like, that's his dream to do that. So um, how that unfolds, I don't know, but I think there's better rep representation, you know, across the, the racial spectrum, I guess, and uh, people from all, all walks of life. Um, I see a lot of uh, um, black and Hispanic women do like local sports reporting for NBC and ABC and Fox in Chicago here. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think I think that there's an opportunity for anybody who's really motivated to do sports journalism. You know, there's different types of it now when we're in a gig economy. So whether you're a freelance sports writer or an editor or you're on screen, you know, in front of the camera, I think there's more opportunities to do more more things. So yeah, I don't know how it unfolds, but it seems like there's a lot of people out there who are motivated to to do cool things as I was. And I think it's just you got to go after what you want in life and wherever we can encourage people that we know who are trying to get in, into the business or get into, get into media, I think, you know, we should definitely do that. Yeah. And I'm a, a Canadian. So I'm, I'm going to, uh, quote Wayne Gretzky. You miss, you, you miss, uh, 100% of the shots you don't take. Right. Yeah. Yep. And he took a lot of them. I mean, he, he made a, he scored a lot. So I'm, I'm wondering how many times he missed. Cause that must've been a hell of a lot too. Well, absolutely, and uh, people don't know you're out there unless you put yourself out there, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and Andy, I know you have a, a deep love and respect for pop culture and how it uh, affects our lives today. So when you look at the world today, I'm, I'm curious, how do you think the intersections of music, uh, sports, and pop culture really intersect to... Uh, influence the decisions we make and the things that we get into as a society. Well, you know, so I, I've never really listened. Like, I can't say that I can't name a song by Selena Gomez. I've seen her in a ton of movies now. Like, I know she's in maybe not a ton of movies. She's at least like at least a dozen movies. And I've seen like three or four of them. And then she's in this series that my wife watched called Only Murders in the Building, where it's three different, very different type of people 
who are all hooked on true true crime podcasts, which is like a real thing now. Um, and then they're all kind of, I, I guess someone dies in their building and they want to figure it out and they do their own podcast. I think she's fabulous. You know, if she pulled up here in Chicago and said, you know, had a concert at Soldier Field, I'm not sure that I'm going to go see her play because I'm not really into her music, but I appreciate her acting. And, you know, who knows? That's not to say that she couldn't uh, uh, drop a single with, um, you know, Drake or, or you know, Bad Bunny or somebody. I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's all kinds of um, cool thing about the, the gig economy is that we're all doing different things. I mean, I used to be in IT and I was in sales dabbling on the side in sports writing and now that's my one of my main gigs uh it kind of goes hand in hand with the fact that like ice cube started a sports league you know big three basketball he wasn't he didn't just, just he wasn't happy just being a lakers fan and watching the lakers win when they win championships basketball enough that he wanted to get into it and you know i found this whole new thing and he didn't stop music doing it so i don't know there's probably at least we want to sit around and talk about this probably we come up with three dozen celebrities off our head who are doing music, doing TV, doing something with sports, doing business. I just saw that Dale Earnhardt Jr., the race car driver, who's mo he's retired from driving mostly. He does weekend play, basically play by play for NASCAR. He's doing something with soccer with Charlotte FC. I didn't think that the guy was a soccer fan at all, but at least he's a soccer investor and he's a soccer fan now because um, he wanted to help be, be part of the group that brought sports, Major League Soccer to uh, South or North Carolina, where he's where he's from and he lives. So I don't know. I feel like pop culture is rife for uh, cross pollination. I guess is, is a term I would use. And I mean, sometimes there's collaborations I want to roll my eyes at, but I think that there's more more often than not uh, being connected digitally and being online and on social media and in the internet. Just it 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 stokes us on a bad day to be kind of vain and need the attention but the other the good byproduct is that there's so much creativity that comes out of pe more people now that i think didn't exist in the analog world that i was born into in the in the 1970s so yeah lots of cool stuff going on around there uh, out there that we can uh we can check into yeah absolutely and uh, Andy, i've got a, a two-part question for you and i'm curious curious for you what's the best part about being you, and you know, I am a child of the 90s myself. I'm 34 now, so I, I grew up in the 90s. So I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on the best part of the 90s as a decade, in your opinion, as well. Well, it, it kind of goes back to the last, I mean, different, uh, different momentum, but same thing. Like we just talked about create like creativity that comes out of everybody being digitally connected now. I think, um, and I'm biased maybe because I, I, that was when I was first, the 90s was when I was like moved out of the house and was first like allowed to like do what I wanted to do at, without the purview of my you know, living in my parents' household. So the world felt like it was wide open to me. But I do feel like musically, 90s, uh, you know, we, for as much as we hear about Nirvana and grunge, there was all kinds of different music that became mainstream and, and to put it another way acceptable that i would turn on the radio and i would hear um you know not just pop music baby 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 it was you know songs about so songs from the grunge and indie scene that were about you know being sad or or recovering from I don't know, something bad that happened in your life or uh you know i think there's a band from milwaukee called citizen king that 
was like a happy-go-lucky sort of funky reggae influenced band that also wrote about having a having a bad day. So I feel like there's so much creativity that came out of the '90s. Um, there were you know women were women in folk were doing their thing with the the Lilith tour. Um, you know, punk came back, metal came back. I mean, hell, Motley Crue had a top ten album in 1997, which showed you that people were still interested in kind of the glammy side of metal. It's like uh, you could be who you wanted to be musically and creatively in the 90s, and it was ex- it, it was more acceptable, and there was just so much more creativity happening. I guess versus the 80s, where in the 80s everything was you know very polished, very glamorous. Uh, you know, you wouldn't wear ripped jeans if you were uh, a band that ex- I guess expected to be on stage uh, at a big venue. So. Yeah, I think just the creativity and variety in the 90s is probably the best thing about it. And what I'll say is, so you're 34, I'm 51. I've got a 16-year-old who's going to be 17 in the summer. He plays guitar. And I find from him and his friends that they're interested in all kinds of music, too. And it, it could be that, you know, we Gen Xers are their parents, so we influence their music. But I think the cool part about uh, the digital world is it allows people who are curious to check out all kinds of different things. So, you know, you could be a kid who, you know, your friends at school listen to, to Drake and um, Selena Gomez, but, you know, one day you hear a Stevie Wonder song from the 60s or the 70s and you go check, you could, you'd spend an hour on Spotify or Apple Tunes or, you know, whatever it's called these days, listening to his music to see if you like it, not just um, that you have to go to a record store and buy something before you, you decide you like it. That, you know, that you... Uh, I think younger kids, the Gen Zs, have a, a better variety in the repertoire with the music that they like because more is accessible. They're allowed to be curious, but also I think that there's a genuine curiosity that other, other generations have to see like, oh, you know, I I like this this band. Maybe I could find out or I like the singer. Who else sounds like them or what else is out there? And that's a really interesting dynamic about the 90s that kind of has worked its way into today. I don't know if that means the 90s are back or just that we have some of the same ethos and motivation and curiosity that we had in the 90s. That's probably more what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I know you also have a background as a disc jockey, so I'm I'm curious how that helps you as a a sports uh, reporter and writer to relate with athletes and musicians alike. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I've been DJed since um, I was in college. I, I have a little bit of a podcast that, you know, is mostly just some of my interviews that I've done. I don't really spend a lot of time on podcasting. But um, so, yeah, it's it's just um, I think more it's just my my interest. In, I do ask like a lot of times with athletes, if I know that they're interested in music, uh, especially in, like in baseball, I will say, like, how'd you pick your walk up song? Because they have a song that usually gets played as they walk to the uh, walk up to the plate. There's a couple of times where I've said, like, so. What kind of music motivates you? What do you play air guitar to when you're home alone and you know nobody's nobody's making fun of you? Um, there's a I, so I grew up an Eagles fan in Philadelphia, and after the Eagles won the Super Bowl, I got to interview Chris Long, who's like you know he's a uh, he's Chris he's um, Howie Long's son. He's uh, I guess he's a lineman. I forget his exact his back position, but I knew he was really into country, even though he didn't grow up in like Texas. And we were talking about country music. I, I asked him if he ever heard of Nikki Lane and. He's like, oh, let me write this down. What what does she sound like? And I said, well, she's like, you know, she's probably in her late 20s. 
She's in the new Nashville scene, but she sounds like a rock and roll Loretta Lynn, which, you know, he's like, okay, well, I got to check her out. You know, I didn't really have a lot in common with the guy. I mean, the guy's a pro football player. I'm five foot seven and I um, am pretty athletic, but I definitely couldn't hang with someone throwing a football and tack- you know, guys tackling each other. But we connected on music. And I do the same. Like I, I connect with people on food too. If I know someone's into barbecue, I've heard they're into barbecue, just like you heard that I was a DJ. I'm probably asked like, so what do you barbecue in your bed? You're like, I hear you're a barbecue person. You're like, what do you do? What, what's your favorite thing? I think that's just. I think the best thing to do with when you're interviewing is just keep it conversational. Be be real with people. I never really. I, I never like the sports reporters who stuck a microphone in someone's face like Jim Gray does and tries to get the scoop. I love Dick Shap. If you you probably don't know who he is, but if you look up Dick Schaap, um on the internet, he's probably been deceased for about 20 years, but he was always super conversational with people, just like he could have a conversation with anybody, no matter how big of a superstar they were in sports or whatever. And just like, you know, shoot the breeze with them and talk about food and kids and music and you know, who knows what. I think that you that goes you that goes a long way and you get more out of your conversations with people when you just are having a conversation with them versus trying to pick their brain for the scoop or the facts or I don't know, some inside thing. I think people don't warm up to you being knows that they, they warm up to you being a human being and just talking with them. Yeah. And I always tell myself it's uh, important not to be in a robot syndrome, right? To always try to humanize yourself because then you get more out of people. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting. Like, um, so I've interviewed a few athletes with disabilities. I interviewed a, a blind para sprinter, a, a Paralympic sprinter, sorry, last summer before Tokyo. And this guy's name was David. And I didn't really know much about him other than he he had won, um, he had won some things. And I basically like, I said, you know, so w- tell me about what's what are you expecting for Tokyo? And he wasn't at all like. You know, it's hard being a blind sprinter. I got to look like he was like, I'm going to be there. to. I'm there to win gold. Like I'm there to dominate. You know, that's how I do it. And uh, he was no less uh, had no less bravado than you would expect of like Charles Barkley or Michael Jordan or anybody you've heard of that's more famous than him. Uh, that was great because like he's had he's got I think I talked to him over uh, FaceTime or Zoom and he had like a mask that he was wearing over his eyes. Like it looked like a sleeping mask to me, but he's you know just standing outside um kind of getting ready to warm up and tell me like he's there to win gold medals. That was really cool to hear. Um, I mean, as a sports reporter, that's the kind of thing you want to hear. You want to hear the bravado. You want to hear like, yeah, we're going to go out there and dominate and kick butt. You don't want to hear, uh, oh, my ankle hurts today. I'm not sure how that's going to go. So that was really cool. Um, I just had a lot of great experiences, and I don't know. I just tried to try to focus on that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I'm curious to ask you about the role you think athletes play today and sort of their social responsibility to contribute uh, to societal issues that affect all of us. What sort of responsibilities do you think athletes and, and musicians play really in controlling the narrative or influencing our opinions today? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we're in a dicier place because politically, I think the country, I mean, the USA is is a little bit more divided. And with social media, you are quick to get tagged with something that maybe you're not. If you say something, not even if you say the wrong thing, you say, um, 
you know, if I complain about the the litter on my street and that crime's a problem, I might be tagged as like, oh, you don't care about social issues as well. Um, I think athletes are probably better, not trained, but conditioned to sort of just be mindful what they say. I think just like business leaders or, you know, teachers or um, anybody who's in the public eye, like, yeah, they should they should be themselves and they should focus on their craft and also just focus on being good human beings. I, you know, one of the, when I was growing up, um, the best pitcher who pl- played for my hometown team, the Phillies, was Steve Carlton. And Steve Carlton would not talk to the press. Like, I don't think you can get away with that now. You'd probably get fined X thousand dollars per game. But he would pitch. He'd kill it. He'd come off the mound um, at the end of the game. Actually, like at the end of the inning, he would go directly to where the kids were, sign their baseballs, and he wouldn't even talk to the press. And he's a Hall of Famer. Like he's he's a Hall of Fame left-handed pitcher who's just amazing at what he did. Won a couple of World Series. Um, you know, not everybody can be like that, and not everybody can be uh, wanting to be famous and quoted every second of the day. I think people just got to be themselves and focus on being good, good people. And if you are motivated to talk about something bigger, like I know some of the women of the U S national soccer team are really, um, you know, the, the equal pay is, is a big thing because they've gone through issues with that, with U S soccer. Um, I know that Julie Ertz is really big on like making, making noise about human trafficking and, and how women are treated, you know, um, I think that's important if that's important to you. And if you have uh, an issue that is important to you, you should definitely like, you know, do something extra. But uh, but at the same time, also a lot of the athletes, just by being an athlete, there's a certain level of hours and time they put in that we don't even see where, you know, they're going to hospitals to meet kids who are sick. They're doing things for the community. Um, It takes, I guess, a special motivation to do something that's more public. It just depends on how comfortable the individual is with them um, going to the next step and, you know, elevating an issue or engaging the public in, in something uh, like this, something that's an important, important issue to them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I have my final question for you before I uh, ask you a couple of uh, sports questions has to do with your own uh, personal and professional legacy and how you want that to be defined. Well, I hope, I hope to write another uh, couple of books. I mean, it, it took me five years to write my first novel in part because you, when the first time you write a book, I think uh, you don't know what you're doing and you, you're trying to figure it out. But I've got a couple ideas for other books. And I guess, you know, down the road, I'd like to be known more for my uh, my books than my sports writing. You think about uh, Mitch Album, who wrote, wrote uh, Tuesdays with Mari. I didn't know. I mean, I probably read some of his articles in the early days of the Internet from the Detroit News that he wrote for but everybody knows him for that, you know, that touchy feely, uh, the book that all our moms bought, uh, Tuesdays with Marty, which I eventually I think they made it into a uh, TV movie. I couldn't write that book. I'm not quite as touchy feely as he he is in that narrative, but yeah, you know, he's gonna be known for that book forever. So I mean, as a writer, not even about the fame, like you want to be known for something like you really, you really put you you really put something out there that affected people that's important. I guess if you're a musician, you want to have the sort of the All-American album or the the rock opera or something. I guess that's what I'm aiming for as a writer, just to kind of write something that is top quality, that is more epic than, you know, what you write in eight, what I write in 800 words for uh, ESPN or Forbes and just kind of see where it goes. Yeah, absolutely. And, 
you you know, just finally, I, I'm curious, uh, what's been keeping your interest in terms of a, a sports and music perspective these, day, these days? And you brought up Chicago earlier about being in the intersection of a great music, and I know uh, Chicago has a great sports scene. So what's been uh, keeping your interest lately? Uh, uh, well, the Cubs, you know, just started again. So I've been, I didn't really pay attention as much last year. I'm not really sure why. I think um, I just kind of checked out. And so uh, they're, they've got some young, exciting players that are pretty consistent. I mean, we're only, I don't know, 20-ish games into the season. We're just, we're just getting started here. Still April baseball. But um, I'm looking forward, no matter what they do, to, to, um, to see, you know, see how they compete this year. And I, as a Cubs fan, it's always great when the Cardinals are in last place. At least they are now because they're going to be good in two months, no matter how bad they are. But um, you know, one of the I, one of the stories I'm dabbling with, I've got a couple ideas for a book, and one is about baseball. So uh, you, know, I obviously need to watch more baseball just to make sure that the gears are turning. I'm I'm plugged in musically. I'm all over the place, but there's a lot of good rock and roll, a lot of good indie rock coming out of Chicago, um, which I could. Uh, I could bore you to death with uh, the details of that, but you know, it's spring baseball's happening. Summer's going to be here soon. There's going to be plenty of chances to see, uh, you know, big concerts and small shows, both indoor and outdoor. And I live in a city where I get to do all those things. So I'm going to be pretty well occupied and happy, you know, for the se next several months. Yeah. And just before I, I, I say goodbye to you, my friend, I'll share a quick story. So the last time, I was in Chicago, was the 2015 NFL Draft when it was in Chicago. And so, so I went with my identical twin brother, and uh, Keith and I had taken a, a, a cab to the hotel, and my brother uh, forgot our passports in the cab, and he thought he had given them to me, and I had given them to him. So I was almost... Uh, Chicago resident, my friend, but we had a good uh, cab driver because he came back to the hotel and I got to go back home to Canada. So that's my Chicago story, okay? Yeah, that happens in Chicago. I remember chasing down a cab. I can't remember if I left my phone or my wallet or something. Like, I remember I was getting dropped off at Navy Pier. I'm the, I'm the person who's like, this is close enough, I'll get out here. Luckily, on the way out of, uh, to get out of Navy Pier, there's a couple stop signs. I remember like, okay, that's the cab. I need to like running around this like I don't know this cul-de-sac or something. Finally got there, like hit the back of the the cab. I was like, hey, I left something in here. And back then, I was in it was in shape enough to kind of chase the cab down, even though it wasn't really going that fast. But yeah, that um, we've all left stuff in cabs. So um, yeah, don't do that again. Because uh, but if you, if you do, you know, and you get stuck in Chicago forever, we'll have to uh, make sure you get acquainted with the local cuisine and. Yeah, lots of great Mexican foods here. It's not just the Chicago style pizza. We got lots of great stuff here. So maybe it won't be so bad if you get stuck here. Uh, Chicago's an eclectic city. And next time I'm in town, I'll look you up, my friend. And tell me if people want to get connected with you personally or uh, by 90 uh, days in the 90s, how, what's the best way they can do that? Yeah, well, it's, it's on Amazon. Um, so if you, if you spell the... Uh, Spell the title wrong, 90 Days in the 90s. You'll find it on Amazon. It's got a bright red cover with a train on the front and a bunch of lightning bolts. So uh, that's actually the time travel mechanism. That's, the, that's what's called the gray line is on the front of the book. 
Um, or you go to 90daysin90s.com. If you're in Canada, I think you have to order through Amazon because otherwise they'd have to fill out customs forms. It'll take forever. But um, anybody who's in the U.S. can order can go to 90daysin90s.com and I can sign you a copy and send it. And then um, I get you get to. I also donate a, a dollar uh, plus of every of every book to uh, an organization called Katie's Kids. So uh, Katie's Kids, look them up. Um, basically, what we do is we do field trips for kids with um, physical disabilities. So uh, last summer, for example, I went to a Bulls game. I was got assigned to a, a kid, um, and you know my job was to like hang out with him, talk to him, get him refreshments, spoil him. Uh, we we had a great time because we were, he was super into cartoons and Marvel, but he also liked Beavis and Butthead a lot. So we we recounted our favorite episodes. And this kid, I think, was like twelve years old. Um, we also do uh, tours of the museums. Like some of the museums here in Chicago are huge to begin with. They're hard enough for me to get around. Um, so if you got someone who's uh, has difficulty walking or they tend to be more comfortable in a wheelchair or something, um, Katie's kids will do these field trips where we take them out. So I always donate money to that, and I volunteer. My son volunteers, and um, they're at katieskids.com if anyone wants to look up some of the cool stuff we do. But uh, yeah, if buy my book, a piece of a uh, piece of it will go to that. Otherwise, I'm on Twitter at SportyFry, F-R-Y-E. That's SportyFry with an E. And, um, yeah, I guess I'm on the Internet otherwise. Uh, fantastic. Well, and as I told you at the uh, outset of our conversation, you're joining me today on a special day for the uh, program as we uh, surpassed 700 episodes today. So I want to thank you for uh, taking part in the celebration of the milestone for the show. And I certainly want to thank you for the great insights you brought to the show as it relates to the intersection of sports and music. My friend, your work in the space and top on my behalf is most appreciated. And I want to thank you for being here today. Yeah, thanks, man, for having me on. It's good to talk to you.